0: an adventure coming in today and you came in to hear about a genealogy today. I didn't want to tell anyone because if you were going to brave it and you heard we were talking about genealogy, people would be like, no way. I'm not going out in the snow to hear about a genealogy, but get this, get this, check this out. This genealogy is one of the, it's one of my favorites in the whole Bible and there are many in the Bible and you could say, well, that's a low bar and maybe it is, but this one is awesome. And I'm actually really, really excited to begin our conversation through the book of Matthew, through the life of Jesus, at Christmas time, at Advent. Here we go. We're going to jump into the genealogy here in just a minute. Now, I want you to think about as you come to this text, what's your own genealogy? What's your own story? You know, all of us come from the decisions and the hopes and the fears of all the generations that came before us. I don't know if any of you geek out on genealogy. I do a little bit. Some of you might. Some of you might just have not, don't have any interest in it. But whether or not you have an interest in it, you come from somewhere. And you come from something. There were people, men and women, that made decisions all throughout the long years to give you a shot at being here today. And that's a pretty incredible thing if you actually let it just sit. That in all the history of the world and in all the history of your family... All the people made all the decisions that led to you sitting right here and right now. Think of all their adventures. Think of all of their struggles. Think of all of their illnesses and their hopes and their dreams and their failures and their successes and their victories. All of them led us to right here and right now. Even with all of our kaleidoscopic differences in our families, right? Because all of our families are different, but they're not that different, right? Because a family's a family. And in every family there's joy, and in every family there's pain and sorrow, hope, fear, adventure. Now in the ancient world, your genealogy meant an awful lot, much more than it does so today. It was a way to triangulate your position in history. If you come from this family, you might do this kind of job. If you come from this family, these kind of opportunities might be available to you. If you come from this other family, you might do something totally different. there's weight on people based on their family tree, their genealogy. Your position in society, in faith, in the human drama could all be kind of sussed out from your family story. This season is historically called Advent, and Advent can mean coming or arrival, even invasion. The arrival of Jesus is, as you would expect, a huge deal, and it is accompanied with a storied genealogy. But instead, instead of a triumphant catalog of human greatness, instead of a litany of successes, we find that the coming of Christ and his genealogy are as surprising as the rest of the story will be, are as thrilling as the rest of the story will be, if we're willing to look and see what Matthew's trying to tell us here in his genealogy. So we're going to pray, and I want to invite you to think about your own family story and what brought you here today. And then we'll jump into the text together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Where do you come from? What's your lineage? What's your ancestry? Should think for just a minute about your family. There will be darkness in that reflection. There will be struggle and pain and brokenness as you reflect. There will be victory and adventure and grace and love as you reflect. Take just a moment. Consider the human drama that brought you here into this world. Father, I just want to ask simply that you would make this genealogy, this ancestry, make it some good news for us today. Show us that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Jesus, are addressed in Jesus. That through his family lineage, through his history, the history that brought about his coming and his presence, That through the interruptions that we see, through the highlights that we see, through the amazing, incredible stories we see, we would catch something of what you're trying to tell us as you sent your Son to be the Savior of the world. Father, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's get to it. This is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We can't even catch our breath and it's only, the first, it's, already the, it's only the first verse. Matthew introduces us to Jesus with his genealogy. This word genealogy in the original language could be the word Genesis. So you could read this text as this is the Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In a context where Genesis means the beginning of everything, Matthew suggests that the beginning of Jesus is a new beginning. And when he says Jesus the Messiah, he says Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the sent one, Jesus the heroic one. That is what Messiah means. It is a job description in the ma- imagination of the family of God. The hero, the promised one who is promised to come and to set, sort everything out that's what messiah means the son of david the son of abraham these are two enormously loaded ways of identifying the hero the son of david david is king david is israel's greatest king god had promised that there would be a king in david's line that would be king for all time one that would be called god's son Jesus is in the line of David, though Jesus himself will question the meaning of the son of David. He points out later that David actually calls the Messiah, the sent one, Lord. And Jesus will ask the question, how can the Messiah, the one in the line of David, be called Lord by David? How does that work? And Jesus says he was talking about a hero to come from his family. One that would be greater than him. The promise to David was forever. Forever. The son of Abraham. God promised Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the stars. He promised Abraham that through Abraham's family, all people on the planet would be blessed. So, son of David means forever. Son of Abraham means for everyone. The coming of Jesus... Is forever for everyone. Matthew wastes no time in getting our attention. The words leap out from the text and announce that this isn't just any story, this is welded and framed and mortared into the story. And then this genealogy comes Genesis. Genealogy can be boring, this one is not. It is laden with surprises, with people you would not expect, with a couple alterations, with a great deal of creative license even. Three sets of 14 generations will find. The first set will ascend to King David from Abraham. The second will descend from Solomon into exile and brokenness. The third will ascend again to Jesus through a bunch of unknowns. In this genealogy, in just these names, we have a distinct theological teaching that tells us about God, that tells us about His story, that leads us to the coming of Jesus. In the first 14 generations, we will find four women. In the second 14, we will find four alterations. In the third 14, we will find a fifth woman and a fifth alteration. Matthew knows exactly what he is doing in this genealogy. And it is beautiful, and it is poetic, and it is a dynamic display of the story of God. Let's dive in. Look at verse 2 and following. We're going to take the first set first. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nishan. Nishan, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Ruth. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. I'm sorry. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Okay, so I know that's a lot of names. And there's 14 generations there. And in that 14 generations, and we have it up on the screen there for you. In a culture that is shaped by a powerful patriarchy... The most interesting and the most compelling thing about this genealogy, especially in these first 14 generations, are not the men. The most surprising, the most shocking, the thing that gets your attention if you're reading this in the ancient world are the women in this text. Why? How can I say that? Isn't it normal to talk about the women in a family tree? It actually is not normal to talk about the women in a family tree in the ancient world. That's, they talked about men. They talked about sons and fathers and sons and fathers. And not just sons and fathers, but firstborn sons of fathers. That's how it worked. And so it is shocking, and it is arresting, and it catches our attention when we see that not just one woman is mentioned, but four. And it is not just any four Look at the four that are included here. Because Matthew could have chosen 14 women. But he doesn't choose 14 women. He chooses four. And he does it on purpose. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife. This is a teaching about the mercy and the love of God shown in the inclusion of women into this genealogy. The four women are all racially and or morally different. I love commentators because that's, I took that from them. That's their word. When the commentators are talking about these women, they call them morally different, which is a really sanitized way of saying that these women were thought to be sinners on the outside of the family of God. They would have had no place in God's family, let alone in his genealogy. Do you hear me? That's how shocking we're talking about. Morally different. Outcast would be closer to the truth. Let's go through and look at them just briefly. Tamar, this woman we see first, notice that we're seeing man after man after man. I mean, Abraham, Abraham's wife was Sarah. I mean, she's this great figure in Israeli history, right? And you'd think in Jewish history, you would talk about Sarah. There's Rebecca. There's Rachel. We don't see any of them. The first mother we see is Tamar. Tamar had to play a prostitute to trick her father in law into keeping his promise to give her a rightful place in his family. Judah, Judah's, I mean, he, she was so, her story is so shocking in that. Her father-in-law had said, I will make sure that you're taken care of. And his son was so evil that God killed him. And so she was having, she had this hole, she was a widow. And he had promised to give her a husband. And he delayed, and he delayed, and he delayed. And she got more and more vulnerable. And more and more on the outside. So she dresses up as a prostitute, tricks him, which means, by the way, this man would do that. And that's kind of his story. And by doing that, she ends up back in the family. It's an incredible story. It's PG-13. It's not like Silent Night, Holy Night, you would think. Look at the next woman. Will you skip ahead for us there? Yeah, see, check this out. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was who now? Rahab. Rahab's name throughout history is often Rahab the prostitute. Like we don't, we don't just, You don't just hear Rahab, you hear Rahab the prostitute. She was assisting the people of God in claiming their homeland. She risked her life in faith that God was going to do something new in the place that she was from. She was a foreigner, and foreigners were looked down upon in many ways, and they would have not been thought to be a part of the family of God. In the New Testament, she'll go on to be praised for her faith and for her works. And she was a madam, right? Let's look at the next one. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Who's Ruth? Ruth is a Moabite. Moabites are the descendants of the incestuous Lot. She is amazing, and her story is incredible for her faith, but also for the fact that she is a Gentile, an outsider racially, And she ends up being the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king. Listen to me. Moabites were considered to be excluded from the people of God for ten generations. And if you heard what I just said, her being great-grandmother of King David, that makes it incredibly awkward. Because she isn't supposed to be in there. Because David is only two generations away from Ruth. So the rabbis got together and they got around the rule saying that, Ah, what God was talking about was Moabite men. Moabite women are within two generations were good. That's how they got around it. She's a foreigner. She doesn't belong. Or does she? Look at the last woman in this set of four. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Notice he doesn't even say her name. She's identified by just the phrase Uriah's wife. Matthew won't even bring himself to name her. It's Bathsheba. She isn't even David's lawful wife. David had her husband killed in order to get to her. She's one of Jesus' grandmothers. Here's the thing. In the patriarchy of the Old Testament, you don't really mention women at all in a genealogy. And here's another thing. If you do mention women, the only reason you do is to demonstrate how pure and how dignified your family line is. None of these women are Hebrews. None of them are in. Yet here they are, in. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was a Jerichoite. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was a Hittite. Two of the most important men in the whole Old Testament. Judah, Jesus would be said to come from the tribe of Judah. He was the lion of Judah. Judah and David are crisis points in the genealogy. Do you see this? That we're marching through the generations and we get to this this generation where Tamar comes in. If Tamar doesn't dress up as a prostitute and trick her father-in-law, what happens? It falls apart. It falls apart. If Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, doesn't enter in at the time and in the place that she does, what happens? These are crisis points in the family of God and in the story. It isn't the women who threaten the identity of the people of God in these stories. It is the men. Matthew poured over his Old Testament to come up with the most questionable people in the family of Jesus to demonstrate the good news of Jesus. Jesus. Here's a question. Is it in spite of these women or because of these women that redemptive history moves forward? You can have your own conclusions. I say it's because of them, because of the roles that they play. The matriarchs were given as the highlights of this first part of the genealogy for a meaningful, demonstrative story of the grace of God that we will meet in Jesus for everyone, everywhere, and every time, especially those on the outside. Yes, especially. The first line of the genealogy these 14 generations celebrates the triumph and foreshadowing of the mercy of God in broken situations. Is this genealogy preaching yet? I mean, it's amazing what Matthew does to highlight, to show us, to get our attention about what 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 kind of story is this that we're getting caught up in. Look at the second 14. Here we go. Picking up in verse 7. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. No relation, by the way. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Matthew, in the second set of 14 generations, makes four alterations to this genealogy. Four, not one, four. And you heard me right, alterations, is what I meant to say. Everyone knows the genealogy in the Old Testament. Well, not everyone, but you could go back and look, right? Because it's written down. So this genealogy is written down. So-and-so had this son, had this son, had this son, had this son. Matthew takes that, and he makes adjustments to some of the names. And he actually leaves out some generations for this perfect symmetry of 14, 14, and 14. Matthew takes an artistic license with this section of the genealogy because he's wanting to make a point to preach a message inside of this family line. The second set of 14 generations follows the descent of the family of God into exile. He changes Asa to Asaph. This isn't reflected in the NIV that we had on the screen, but in the NRSV and in other translations. He changes Ammon to Amos. Asaph means psalmist, and Amos means prophet. Good news and judgment. These are the themes that Jesus' life will demonstrate dramatically. And so for nerdy, good Jewish kids who are reading their Bible and going... Well, Matthew, is talking about this generation. I know that person had this son and this son and this son. And wait a minute, why did he change the name? What does that mean? He knows that I know that I can find it out. It's not an accident. You know, people see that, and you might read that and be like, oh man, the Bible contradicts itself. And I think what you want. I think that Matthew, he knows that we're smart enough to read our Old Testament. And so when he does this, he does it on purpose. When he leaves out generations to get it to 14, he does so on purpose. Because he's driving at a message with this genealogy. He wants to get at the meat of the story. He cuts out three generations between Jehoram and Uzziah. He is not concerned with including every generation. What Matthew wants is this beautiful symmetry. The alterations specifically fit within the theme of the kingdom of God descending into chaos. Do you hear me? That first 14 is this ascent to David, right? The second 14 is this descent into chaos and into exile. And at the end of the second set of 14, we have this question, how do we get to Jesus? Because it's all come apart. And then there's this third set, the point of the second line is justice. The point of the first set is to shock us with the mercy and the grace of God and these unexpected women. The third, the third will show us how we get to Jesus. Look at verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihad, Abihad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Elazar, Elazar the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah if you squint with Matthew, which we do, right? He paints this beautiful, totally symmetrical picture. Why? Why? If you want to geek out, Matthew is missing some names here also. And again, we see the creative creative license to get to this 14. Christ was said to be the shoot from the stump of Jesse. The, the image was supposed to be a, like a cut down tree, and it's vivid when you think of family trees. The idea was that this family tree had been cut down, and that there would be this new shoot, this new growth that would come out of this broken down family. The point for Matthew is that God came through. In a family that wrestles with God, God himself comes through. If you're counting, which I'm sure you weren't, but if you were counting, you'll notice that the last set of 14 actually only has 13 generations in it. In case you're wondering if he's doing it on purpose, he calls it 14. It's not even 14. It's 13. And the point of it being 13, who's missing? Who's missing? God himself comes into this family tree. This reveals something about the promises of God to David and Abraham. See, because in Israel, adopted parents were no less parents than biological parents, just like today. And Jesus' lineage is interestingly traced through his adopted father. Notice that the generations go and there's some shout-outs to these women that made these incredible acts of faith along the way and that actually kept the family together by some of their faith. And then we get to the end, and we get to his dad, and we think, Joseph, the father of Jesus, and we're just waiting and waiting and waiting, and we get to the end of this genealogy, and he says, Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we're all catching our breath. Because that's not how it normally goes in this distinguished genealogy see, Mary is poor, unmarried, and pregnant. She isn't a regular figure in the family of God. But as Matthew has shown us repeatedly, God moves in incredible ways in all sorts of people and actions and tragedies and joys to see his kingdom come and his will be done. Matthew powerfully commands a creative retelling, of the history of the people of God. I said a retelling. God himself demonstrates his love for us even in this recitation of a genealogy. When Matthew pours over Old Testament history, when he does his creative math, the bottom line is Jesus. He sees a rough symmetry in the genealogy of Jesus. And the roughness of it makes it all the more beautiful and poignant poignant, if you're willing to let Matthew be creative, which we are. He wants to give the reader a memorable genealogy with women that stick out and moments that capture your attention. That this story of grace and mercy is forever and for everyone. You know, I used to think that the genealogy of Jesus... Was about God working in spite of the darkness we find here. And in fact, in my preaching of this text before, I have to say, and I have to say that maybe I misrepresented it a little bit. Because you might have heard me say in the past in Matthew about God working in spite of these women or in spite of this darkness that we find in the genealogy. I'm not so sure that's true. Because the way Matthew tells it is that it is through these women, and it is through their faith, and it is through, in the midst of the broken bits, that he tells his story of grace. Not in spite of. God doesn't work in spite of Rahab. He doesn't work in spite of Tamar. He doesn't work in spite of Ruth. He doesn't work in spite of Bathsheba. He doesn't work in spite of Mary. He works through In their situations that were considered to be out of bounds and broken, the powerless are more powerful than they could ever have dreamed. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. His kingdom where the lost and alone are not either lost or alone, but included in the kingdom of God. What about you? What about me? What about today? When she asks you ask these questions as we go to our prayer time here at the end. Will the promise win out over the brokenness in your own story? And where in your life are you least expecting, Not most expected. In the season of Advent. In the season of Christmas of expectation. Where are you least expecting God, in? Show mercy and grace. Maybe that's exactly the place where he wants to show it to you. Would you bow your hands and close your eyes? Consider for a moment. Again, your story. Where are you least likely? <laughs> where are you least expectant of God's mercy and his grace? What have you given up on this year? Who have you given up on? Just spend a couple minutes just thinking, praying, engaging with God, just in the quietness of your heart, reflecting on that place where you never would expect God to show up. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for another spin of the calendar, another time we find ourselves here at Advent looking for your son Jesus to make your will be done to establish your kingdom in our hearts this upside down kingdom where people who are on the outside are in people who were counted out, written off find a place in the story where your grace and your mercy are enough more than enough to overwhelm our brokenness and the darkness and the sin that we face I pray for all my friends and for myself that always and yes during this season we find you in the unexpected you challenge us To love in ways that are unexpected, in ways that are upside down, in ways that don't make sense, in ways that transcend our own understanding. So, Father, help us as we go from this place, as we live our lives during this season, as we engage with friends and family and strangers and neighbors and everyone else, God, that you give us a heart. that understands your grace and your love, that accepts it, that embraces it, and is able to give it away to others. Father, we thank you so much for bringing us together here safely today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for being here for giving the offering as part of your time with God today. The box is in the back, and you all have a great week. We'll see you next time.